I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to All Stats Home, we are a podcast in which Leeds fans cast a combined eye over goings on at Elland Road, giving scrutiny to the underlying statistics and tactical footings at work at Leeds United. I'm John McKenzie, the, oh great, football has died of the podcast. It was nice while it lasted. And I'm joined by the Adam Forshaw didn't die for this of the podcast, Joe Hill. Seriously, 80 minutes of football and it's already over. And finally, the, oh yeah, we also drew with Liverpool of the podcast. It's getting boring taking points off all of these super leagues. It's Tom Woodhead. Tom, how are you doing? I'm not too bad. Um, I enjoyed watching us uh, stick one in the eye of um, whatever the hell we're sticking things in the eye of nowadays. <laughs> Last night, it was good. Mm. Yeah, and Joe Hill, how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. It's hard to it's hard to sort of separate the two things at the moment. I I thought like the game last night and obviously all the other chat about the Super League. It sort of has a weird has a weird feeling around it, and you sort of have to remember that oh, we actually got a decent result against against Liverpool and you know following from the Man City game the last two games have actually been really good results wise so we kind of have to just remember that <laughs> I was saying to you guys before like I have a lot of friends who work in the football industry and it's it's meant that I've been feeling quite flat the last few days because uh, I guess and events like the events that we've seen over the last few days have have really sort of laid bare what modern football is about and uh, it, it, I think the, the the tricky thing about all of this is that the, you you know there's so much good stuff in football, and there's so much of that good stuff that's just completely mired in the bad stuff about football that it becomes very very tricky to sort of extricate yourself from from one or the other. And so yeah, it's been it's been a funny few days, and I, as a result, I found the game yesterday quite flat. It, it not that it felt pointless, but it just sort of felt. It felt a little bit overwhelming in, in certain ways. So hopefully that won't really come across in my analysis in, in the next hour. But um, it was a good game. And it was a game where, again, I think we saw the tactics shift things for the better in the second half. So I think there is stuff to talk about. Um, before we get to that, though, we do talk a lot about Adam Forshaw on this channel um, for very good reason, I like to think. But Adam Forshaw did have a return to televised football, at least 
on Friday night uh, and got 83 minutes uh, against Aston Villa on the 23s. I don't know if either of you two caught it. I know that you, Tom Woodhead, did catch a bit of it. I've watched the game back. Unfortunately, I was playing football at the time, so I wasn't able to watch it live. But Tom, I'll go with you first on this. What did you make of Forshaw's return? I thought he was good. I, I watched basically the last um, 10 minutes of the first half and all of the second half, basically. Mm. And uh, yeah, I thought he looked he looked sprightly. He looked he looked pretty fit, all things considered. Um, he looked tidy, as he always does. Um, he misplaced, misplaced one or two passes, but not very many. Mm. It was quite hard to tell from the angle that um, LUTV you were using what was going on off the ball. But um, whenever he was on the ball, he looked pretty much like his old self in as much as you can tell mm. from under-23's football. Yeah, I think for me, a lot of what, I've been looking at when I've been watching him back now is is just his how he looks in terms of his physiology um, and he he does look I, I thought he would come back looking maybe a little bit slower maybe a little bit more lethargic but he does look sharp um, and as you said you know he didn't obviously we're, we're going to have to see how scalable it is it's it's all well and good playing well against Aston Villa under 23s no doubt a good under 23 side but uh, not really a great correlate for Premier League football but he looked as though you could easily throw him into a Premier League game late on, see how he would fare, and he didn't look like he would be miles off the pace for me. But um, Joe Hill, I don't know if you managed to catch any of Forshaw. I caught a little bit, yeah. Um, I was sort of, I was sort of in and out of the of the game as it was happening, um, mm. and then watched some highlights afterwards. And I've obviously seen that lovely little reverse pass that he made. Uh, I, I don't know which half it was in, but um, we've all seen it on the highlights. But um, yeah, it was obviously just nice to see him back. And I agree that he did look sharper than I expected. I sort of agree with you that I did expect to see him um, looking a bit slower and, you know, maybe a bit tentative. But um, he looked he looked like he was really up for it. And I think it'll be a nice benchmark for him. I'm sure he'll be really keen to play this season. Um, it seems achievable. I think we've got mm. six, six odd games left, six or seven. Um, so we're talking the last couple of games of the season, presumably, but if he can get on as from uh, off the bench for one of those games, then that'll be a, a great benchmark um, mm. for him and for all the Leeds fans that have been missing him all this time. It's an interesting one because I don't think the club would have persevered with him this long. I mean, it's been nearly two years, hasn't it? So I, I, I can't imagine they would have persevered that long unless they thought there was a real chance that he was going to be fit and healthy and okay to play Premier League football so I, I suppose in that sense there's a, a there's a level of logic to the fact that he is playing as well as he is at the moment I don't think we would have seen him playing in the under 23s if he wasn't at the standard where he was going to be able to play for the under 23 so it, it feels very much to me that as though the club are saying we're happy with where he's at happy enough that we would play him and we're not just going to dump him in the 23s just to see how he does we know that he's good enough to play there and we're going to see um, if we can just get enough miles in his legs and minutes under his belt so that he can uh, potentially come on at some point um, I guess this does raise questions about the transfer uh, policy in the summer Tom Woodhead I don't know if you have any opinions on that do you think it will mean that we don't see another central midfielder coming in if he manages to make it to the end of the season without any further breakdowns or anything like that it wouldn't surprise me if that factors into the thinking in some way um, I, I mean I guess Forshaw is not a player who's ever been um, overly reliant on physicality or um, pace or anything like that. So it's not like he's a winger who's going to be, or, you know, like a Michael Owen type striker whose main attributes are going to be significantly diminished if he is a tiny bit slower than he was. 
and especially if he's not expected to be a first choice player if he if he's going to be someone who can come in for either Phillips or um a possible uh midfield signing or Dallas that we make um then I think it's always going to be a risk isn't it but but it, it could be a calculated risk that allows us for example to buy a right-footed winger when we otherwise wouldn't have had the money to do it or something like that so I, I don't it, it seems crazy to take a risk on Forshaw when he's got the record that he's got but Bielsa was always on about how professional he'd been throughout his period out and that he'd kept his physical standards up and it seems from what I've heard that the injury that he had it was to do with specific movements involving playing football rather than um, anything just fun, fully wrong uh, with his hip or was it his hip or his groin I'm never quite sure but it sounds like he's been able to I don't know whether that's swimming or cycling or whatever, but keep physically fit the entire time, like throughout the injury. So it's not that he's coming back from a baseline of no fitness at all. He's coming back from a very high um, baseline in terms of metabolism and things, and and, uh, and in terms of just uh, being a fit, um, a fit man about uh, at that sort of age. So um, you know, fingers crossed if they've actually got to the root of the problem and, and only the club really know if they have or not, and they probably don't even know, but if they have, then I'd be perfectly happy to see him as a, a member of the squad who can contribute. I'm very much not a physiotherapist, but um, I, I did play a lot of football between the ages of 18 and, and 30, pretty much. And towards the end of my time, I started getting a huge amount of problems with my hips. And a lot of this comes down to the fact that the pelvis is actually, it's, it's a sort of, I guess it's a sort of ring of of bone and and there's a lot of tension in that ring and what you get is as soon as one thing affects you on one side it will it will tweak things on the other side as well so there's a lot of thing there's a lot of things that are all in very fine um alignment I suppose in, in that in that area and what I was told when I was going through I went through a lot of physio uh, a lot of uh, what I was told is that a lot of footballers don't do enough deep core um or lower core exercise when they're when they're training because um you don't really see any benefit from it obviously um because it's it's sort of all all sort of deep pelvic stuff and and the problem then becomes is that you start then throwing out a lot of the alignments um you, you get you, you get sort of muscle imbalances and stuff which can which can throw things out and I'm sure something like that has happened for him and for me again it was the same I could do loads of exercise if I wanted to but there were certain um movements that I couldn't do when I was playing um towards the end which some of which involved like hitting the ball hard with with one of with one of my feet um because the the hip flexor just couldn't take the couldn't take the the strain really and and I'm sure it's something like that that he's 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 basically gone through so yeah it will be good to see him come back and I think if we play him as a a backup player who we can have on the bench who we're not going to put a huge amount of pressure on in terms of making appearances then he'll be definitely a benefit to us and I think we've he's definitely a profile of player that we've missed in the last couple of seasons we've really not actually replaced him in any way because we've always had this sort of uh, injury stuff dragging on for for two years and you know it felt as though I mean he, he went off and at the beginning of last season and came back on for half the half against Ch- Charlton when we lost the game yeah and at that point like none of us were thinking well that's it you know we're not going to see him we we just thought it was a sort of few few days out and then he'll be back I don't think he was either I think he expected to be back fairly soon and throughout that's been one of the running themes hasn't it that Forshaw has, whenever he's quoted has always said I'll be back pretty soon yeah he thought he was going to possibly play after lockdown last season so it's obviously been immensely frustrating for him as well no doubt the club were expecting him to come back much quicker than he actually has. But um, one final question on Forshaw, I suppose. 
in terms of like what difference do you think that Forshaw would make to this team given that we've we basically had to sort of belt and braces patch up the midfield with Stuart Dallas uh, Joe what do you think that this season might have looked like if we'd have been able to play a Fitch Forshaw from the off one of the biggest benefits to having him fit would have been having cover for Calvin um, when he's been out um, when Calvin's been out and someone's had to step in like Strauk or Urente or Cock, you know, it's just it's just not made any sense. And the team, the whole team, sort of had to move around, and everyone's had to shift positions because of that. Um, and I think that's that's. I'm not sure if it's the biggest thing um, that we would have got from him, but that's certainly um, a big contribution. And obviously, the other thing um, is that midfield structure um, where we've seen Dallas playing this n- new role this season. Um, and it might have been that that could be Forshaw's role and that Dallas um, would assert his place at left back and then we wouldn't have so many issues with Alioski, um, who probably is our weakest player um, in the start, starting eleven. I think most people would agree with that. Um, so I think it's more the knock-on effects of us plugging the gaps of him being out and what that means for the team in terms of everyone rotating positions. Um, so if it means that we can have a centre-back pairing playing 10, 15, 20 games in a row, um, for sure being fit, that is, then obviously that's going to be a huge benefit to us. I think some of the other things, um, some of the more chaotic losses, I think we think like losing to Leicester 4-1 and things like that, I don't think we would have seen so many of those runaway scorelines with Forshaw in the team because I don't think centre-backs would maybe be able to run through us in quite the same way as they did in some of those games. I think we would have had overall a bit more solidity and we've kind of we've achieved that solidity a different way now Bielsa's worked out a way to do it by sticking Dallas in the middle um but I think we wouldn't have had so much of a problem in the first place we wouldn't you know Scott McTominay might not have scored two goals in the first five minutes or whatever it was against Manchester United so I think um in general there would have been a bit less chaos well we could talk about Adam Forshaw for a whole hour I'm sure but we should move on and talk about the the game yesterday uh, I'll begin as we always do with how did that feel I think we've already touched on this a little bit but um, how did the game itself feel to you Tom the first half was difficult I don't think we ever really got out of the traps we I don't think we were under the cost quite as much as we were in that first game against Manchester City but it was following a relatively similar pattern uh, in that Liverpool were doing most of the attacking I don't think they didn't I think they're still not in great form, so I don't think they they didn't have the kind of guile that City had in that first 20 minutes where it did seem like they were really carving us open at will. And I think actually Liverpool could have... If, if, if Liverpool were at the top of their game, I think they could have easily scored a couple of goals in that first like quarter of an hour or something. But uh, we, we held them off. Um, I, I think in general, our penalty box defending if was quite good, even if some of our defending in the middle of the park wasn't so great in that first half. And then... Um, second half, uh, credit to the players because I didn't see a clear way for us to come back into that game. Um, I couldn't see anything obvious to change and I don't think anything hugely obvious did change about the way we were playing. I think uh, we I think we, we asserted ourselves because Liverpool, I think Liverpool got, got a little bit nervy and, and started dropping back a bit and that allowed it. And once we were in the game um, and creating chances on a semi-regular basis, I think... Our team is like that, isn't it? It builds up momentum like a stone rolling down a hill and and we were able to do that. And then that second half, I think we, we played really well, but it was it was one of those weird things where 
I was watching the second half and, you know, it gets to about 70 minutes and I suddenly think, actually, we have played really well this second half. And it almost crept up on me without me noticing it because I was I was still in that sort of first half mindset. But it, it, it um, I think it was definitely a deserved point. And I was surprised when I saw the XG that we, um, according to the XG that I saw at the time, we beat them by a clear goal, which I, I was actually quite surprised at because it seemed a lot more even than that to me. The thing I would say is that Liverpool did feel as though they weren't as sharp as they usually would in the attacking phases. I think there's there's a lot of moments where Liverpool in previous seasons would have would have scored. They would have or at least had very good chances and hit the target. There's a, there's a few chances where we gave the ball away in silly scenarios and ended up not even conceding a shot on target. So I think there's maybe a little bit to be to be to, used as a caveat there. I also think there's a couple of chances. I've just looked back through the info goal xG. Um, figures which isn't ideal i would prefer to go through the uh, the stats bomb uh, xg figures on fb ref but they're not up yet but they've included a couple of chances where had the goal been scored they would have been chalked off and so they they wouldn't have counted towards xg there was um there was a pat bamford one where he swept the ball wide in the first half from a free kick i think it was uh, and then there was the helder cost one at the back post and they were both fairly good chances um so there's a big chunk of xg that was from them but yeah certainly certainly balancing off those two things it it was a de- deserved point for me especially on the on the basis of the second half but we, we played better than we get against city as well which i think is important to say yeah no for sure and um I do think that even again watching the game back this morning I was a little bit surprised at how many good chances Liverpool had in the second half because it did feel as though we sort of steamrolled them a little bit in the in the second half but again there was a there was a break where they were 3 on 2 and they didn't even manage to get a shot on target there was the the Melier um chance where where he just gave the ball straight to Salah and and Pascal Strout defended it quite well there was another chance where Salah got in behind and and just dragged the ball past the past the post so there there was definitely chances they could have had that they could have scored which you would have thought on balance they they probably would have done in in previous seasons but this season they they looked poor yesterday i was i was surprised at how poor liverpool looked for me i i know that there are all kinds of caveats for that as well and we can get onto that in a bit but uh, they didn't really look um dangerous in in any way i didn't think but um yeah joe i'll give you a chance to to say how it felt for you as well yeah i agree with what you chaps are saying i think a draw is probably the fair result and obviously we have to caveat Liverpool's performance with their injury crisis that's just you know this just the obvious thing to say really um even this even last night they had Fabinho uh, playing centre-back um which he hasn't been doing because it's been Phillips and Kabak um and they've sort of formed quite a good partnership um from a Liverpool point of view so they did have players out of position and obviously Henderson wasn't playing um but I think I think a draw is probably fair. I think, like you say, both teams had really big chances. Um, Liverpool's didn't end up uh, resulting in shots on target as much as they should have done. Like you, like you mentioned, those two Salah ones. Um, and then Leeds, I think we could have been a bit more clinical. Like Roberts in the second half, cha- uh, Roberts's chance was just huge. I mean, as soon as that ball is played through from Paveda, um, it just looks like a certain goal. It just looks like he sl- has to slot it past the keeper. Um, and I think maybe he loses his composure slightly and just tries to welly it as hard as he can. Um, and Allison couldn't have even gotten out of the way if he tried. Um, it was just straight at him. So I think given all of that, it, a draw was probably a fair result. And yeah, we, we probably could have gone on to win uh, had we taken our chances a bit better. But equally, um, Liverpool, the, the same thing applies to Liverpool. Um, 
so yeah i think overall it, it felt pretty good and it was it like i said earlier it was masked by the, all the super league stuff but um when i isolate the game in my mind i'm pretty happy with it you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Right, so let's get into the questions then. We had, as always, quite a few questions, too many to fit them all in, so do bear with us. But thank you for sending them in. We do read all of them and we do uh, try and get the representative ones there. Um, I'd like to start off by covering a bit of the Super League stuff uh, because I do think that um, it's it's something which does impact us as a club and it's something that I at least feel as though I want to uh, get some things off my chest. Um, so um, Arnie B said, do we care? Not really, but the Rebel Alliance get a late draw against the Galactic Empire. Um, <laughs> obviously, that's that's um, uh, narrating the events in a certain way. Um, I don't necessarily have a problem with that, but I'll put this over to you guys. Um, how do you feel about the whole... European Super League phenomenon that we've seen unfolding in the last few days. I'll start with you, Tom. I think I feel like most people feel it's it's an abomination, if that's not too strong a word to use about something to do with football. It's um, it's taking just taking a, a fundamental thing about what makes football great, which is the fact that you can get promoted and relegated, and just the fundamental inability or un- unwillingness to understand that from the clubs involved. And I think it is more unwillingness, really, that, that, that you know, they'll pretend like the this is, um, oh, you know, it, it, even if they back if they back out of this, they'll pretend that they weren't aware of the, you know, the sentiment that was going to, the level of sentiment that was going to be against it. But it's absolute bollocks. Of course, they were aware. They just thought, you know, maybe we'll get away with this. There's no fans in stadiums. Um, and, you know, let, let's not pretend that this isn't, um, just a symptom of a wider malaise that's been in football for a long time, and a wider, you know, uh, steamroller that's been on the horizon for years and years, and is, has been coming closer and closer. And even if even if it's seen off, they'll keep trying. They'll keep keep trying until something is done about it, either through legislation or um, through uh, changing uh, through changing the laws of football. Or they have to be told to like made to fuck off basically you can't just ex- you can't we can't keep having this process of uh, we'll modify them with some concessions um because you know you give them an inch they will take a mile every single time and they'll keep taking miles until there's nothing else left those are wise words and i think the majority of the fan base will will, will agree with them uh, joe did you want to add anything to that yeah i think what i want to add i mean obviously everyone's everyone's feeling the same every football fan is feeling the same about this and I think where it strikes me is just thinking about 
what football means to me and what it meant to me growing up and that kind of thing like when you're a kid and you're playing football on the streets or in the playground or in the park um it's just that sense of community and you just dream of winning the world cup or you dream of winning the FA Cup final and the the narrative that we have in in England with this football pyramid is that um teams from the bottom can work their way up um get promoted and take on the big teams take on the the big six and the other teams in the Premier League um and just to eradicate that and to abandon that um footballing pyramid that has been around for far longer than anyone uh, involved um has been alive um yeah it's just horrible to see and the one thing that worries me um well obviously there's lots of things that worry me but um the one thing that worries me about um what will happen if they reverse the decision um is that the top six will try and use this for leverage um to get more money in the premier league for the top six or to alter the Champions League format to the way they want it to be. Um, and I do worry that this was almost part of the plan all along to announce um, this huge breakaway Super League thing and then to reduce that and say, OK, well, we're not going to do the Super League, but um, here are our demands um, because we're, we'll be so generous to you and we will play in your silly Champions League and your silly Premier League but we need these demands and that is what worries me if they happen to back down from this. The thing is how many clubs how many clubs are even ever winning anything like most clubs never win anything at the top level Uh, so if you ask fans of most clubs about what their favourite ever moments supporting their team are it's it usually is some kind of David versus Goliath story, like the kinds of stories that they just want to completely eradicate from football. Like if you know, ask most Leeds, a lot of Leeds fans anyway. Before Bielsa arrived, uh, what's your favourite moment supporting Leeds in the last um, the last ten years, ten fifteen years? A lot of people would talk about uh, beating Man United in the FA Cup in two thousand and eight, uh, and obviously that's not league based, but that's the kind of thing that they want to do away with. They, they want they they don't want the opportunity to be embarrassed they don't want the opportunity to fail they they want they they just want to be these kind of monoliths who will always be there and will always get some bizarre kind of respect and obviously in the end of the day it's all about money isn't it yeah it is and it's the history of football in the last 30 40 years has been about how clubs have have been able to guarantee that they can have in- income and um, there's a, a realization i think in the last particularly in the last year with with the football market contracting because of covid because of the general global economy contracting because of covid that i think there's a bit of a panic amongst the the big clubs that that you know an already fairly unprofitable system is going to become less profitable for them and this is just a, a sort of power grab it's a, a bid for them to to take all of the money from across the pyramid and try and get as much of it for themselves and you know it's it's elitism pure and simple and it should worry us because it's it, it is like you said it's a, it's a it's a metaphor for the for a more i guess pervasive malaise that in, infects modern society in that people at the top are, just seem hell-bent on getting more and more control more and more money uh, and people at the bottom who they rely on let's not forget are, are the ones who lose out and i think that's what that's what really galls me about this is that the idea that the the top 15 clubs are the most important in football because it's just not it's simply not true everything that is good about the 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 elite levels of football is fundamentally 
dependent upon every level of, of football all the way down to the grassroots that you know football talent doesn't develop out of nowhere the players who are playing in those teams yes okay they may have been picked up at a young age by academies but they were playing at local clubs around the UK for the English players around Europe for the European players it, it just doesn't happen from nowhere and, and what you're essentially saying by saying we are going to take the biggest chunk of the money for ourselves and keep it for ourselves is we actually don't value you as 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 the small man, and I think you know it. It, it goes. This is what Gary Neville was saying so eloquently yesterday: is that you know it's not even as if the clubs care about the players. The clubs haven't even told the players that this is happening. The the owners haven't really told told the players what's happening, and they've just sort of thrown them under the bus and been like, "You're going to be the ones who face the flak here." Um, they don't. They they literally do not care for for. for, for football they care about about making money using football as a way of making money and so yeah i'm just going to end by saying when people say football is for the fans and football belongs to the fans i think a lot of the time it's it's sort of hat tip stuff but i do think there's a there's a fundamental sense in which we need to remember as leeds fans that the club does belong to us it doesn't belong to andrea redrizzani it didn't belong to massimo cellino didn't belong to ken bates the club belongs to us as fans and I think for too long we've just sort of allowed these people to run roughshod over over what the club does. So uh, it, it, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to add much more to what you guys have said, other than say, you know, we we are the the, own, the the true owners of the of the club, and it, I think it's down to us in some sense to make it known how displeased we are about the way that things are going. Absolutely, I agree. And the other thing I would say is that one of the excuses that they're coming out with for why this needs to happen is that you know the sense that some kind of bubble is going to burst and. Uh, you know, uh, the finances aren't sustainable anymore because of COVID, etc. But the bubble needs to burst. Like, it's too, like, th- that's the whole fucking point of the bubble. Like, it gets really big and then it bursts because it's too big. Like, we, we, there is too much money in football. You don't need the amount of, you know, pl- players are getting paid so much money. And I, I don't blame the players for taking it, but is there really going to be any material difference in, you know, Lionel Messi's lifestyle if he's earning. 50 grand a week compared to uh, 500,000 pounds a week or I don't even know what he earns anymore but it gets to a point where the extra money is not even doing anything it's not making the game better it's not it's not improving the standard which is 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 what they will claim it's doing it, I, I'm not against any money being in football at all. I'm not saying this should all go back to being amateurs, but th- there comes a point where the extra money is is not bringing anything new to the game. Well, we're halfway through this podcast and we've barely talked about the result <laughs> yesterday. So, but our glorious draw with Liverpool, our glorious draw with Liverpool, uh, or Merseyside Reds, as, as the club so classily put it. But let's ha- let's talk about the football because that's what we we do try and do on this channel. Um, so, I think the big question that was on everyone's lips is what happened between the first and the second half. So James said, love to hear your breakdown between the first and second half. What changed? Uh, Edward Atterton said, I think first half similar to the City game, pre-sending off deeper, more conservative, but still aggressive counter-attacking. Second half opened the game up, relying on fitness. Part of the second half was like first City game and 15 minutes at the end was like those championship games we dominated. Um, and then Mike Turetsky said, seemed like we were defending too deep in the first half. Were we still in the shadows of Man City backs to the wall performance? Uh, Joe, I'll go to you first on this. What do you, what's your sort of sense on the on this switch between first and second half? I think if I was to sum it up, I think that Liverpool dropped off, um, to be honest. I think they were pressing really aggressively in the first half. And in the second half, it sort of looked like they dropped off a little bit and just allowed us to have the ball a, a little bit more, particularly towards the end. Um 
I think Paveda made a huge impact when he came on. I think it was one of his best games for Leeds. He looked really exciting and he looked like what I want to see in a winger. When they receive one of those diagonal balls from the centre-backs um, and they're facing the full-back, I always just want to see them take take him on. Um, I don't know why. I mean, obviously I appreciate a, a, a nicely whipped-in cross, um, but I just want to see a bit of skill. I want to see them get past their man and be aggressive going into the box. And I think Perveda did that really well. Um, and I think the combination of those two things allowed us to have um, a lot more possession. And I do agree at one of those questions um, mentioned the fitness thing. And I think that did play a big part as well, because we all know a team can't press as aggressively as Liverpool did in the first half for 90 minutes. It's just not possible. They have to drop and sit back at some point. Um and I think they were feeling it. I think Liverpool were feeling it the last 15 minutes and they just tried to hold on. And it was probably a, men- a mentality thing for them as well, knowing that they're not in such good form. Um, they just thought, OK, we need to sit back and kill this game off on the counter-attack. Um, unfortunately for us, they didn't manage to do it. I thought Edward's summation of what happened was pretty good, to be honest. Um, and I, I, I do agree we probably were defending too deep in the first half as well. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think... Yeah, I wouldn't add too much. The only thing that I would add is that Calvin Phillips' role basically changed in the two halves. So in the first half, Phillips was playing pretty much a bit of a zonal position as well in terms of the man marking because uh, I think the way that Liverpool were set up was that they, they had their two wide players quite narrow and Firmino was dropping in quite deep. And in the first half, Phillips was doing a lot of man-to-man on Firmino um, and out of possession, um, for Liverpool, Firmino is doing a lot of man-to-man on on Phillips, and so the, I think what that meant was that that Phillips ended up being, playing a little bit deeper, and also meant that Leeds weren't covering the the central midfielders very well. There's a moment in the game uh, in the first half that I, I shared a screenshot with you guys where uh, Allison picks up the ball and he's just able to roll the ball out to Firmino. Uh, sorry to. Vinaldum in the in the center of the field absolutely no one around him and I think that's because Roberts who is nominally marking uh Vinaldum was 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 picking up Tiago who was nominally being marked by Calvin Phillips who was actually marking Firmino so it it ended up that the the Leeds press was just really inefficient in the first half in particular and it didn't it meant that Liverpool didn't have to do a huge amount to transition the ball through the through the thirds uh, in the second half, and a lot of people have pointed this out actually, Calvin Phillips was was just man-marking Thiago and it meant that because Thiago likes to drop deep to pick the ball up, that Phillips was pushing quite far, far up the field. And that that more aggressive press, the man-mark from us, was actually much more beneficial to the way that we were playing. And then obviously if you add that on top of the fact that, as you've mentioned, um, Liverpool's higher press dropped off, um, J- James Milner mentioned in the post-match interview that that they were tired from the the Madrid game as well, and it's it's easy to forget that the Liverpool have played a lot of games in a short space of time, all of which are nominally quite important. I know the the Madrid game maybe not quite um, as important as it might have been, given it looked like they were going out, but it's it's still you still have to travel to another country, play a game, uh, and then and then come back and and then prepare for your next game with not a huge amount of turnaround. So I think it's just a combination of those things. Um, I've got a piece that I'm going to put up. I think today, looking at the the future, how Leeds should should plan for the future, and a lot of that comes down to the way that they approach their press and their man marking. Uh, and I think 
I was really frustrated in the first half because our pressing our pressing has been poor, I think, recently. Um, partly because we have been conservative, partly because we are scared letting centre backs run through the middle. And weirdly, it happened more in the first half when we were being more conservative yesterday than it did in the second half when we were being a bit more aggressive. Uh, and I think a lot of what makes us quite handy in the Premier League is our ability to do that man marking and get the pressing right. Obviously, when it goes wrong, it looks awful and horrible. And I think we've we've maybe lost our nerve a little bit after the, the Manchester United result. Um, but I was glad to see in the second half, we, we sort of went back to basics or it went at least went back to what we did well at the beginning of the season and it certainly seemed to to pay off for me so I don't know if you guys have got any thoughts on that it might be the case that now we sort of need to get to the end of the season and the players mm. need to have a new pre-season to reset that uh, and reset that mentality of, of of being a bit more aggressive like I can I can sort of understand why when you keep getting hammered for five six goals why you would why you would naturally become more conservative so especially when we've got man united again next where i can't i can't see that we're going to suddenly become really pressy again when you know that's the that's the fixture we've been found out the most in all season Let's move on to talk about the defence in general. So the view from 27A says, we feel much more robust and confident defensively over the last seven to eight games. Is this just Llorente's impact, Dallas in midfield, or is there a tactical adaptation that's making us harder to beat? Joe Hill, what's your thoughts on that? It's interesting. I think it's all a reaction. It's similar to what we were just talking about, but I think it's a reaction to the the game at Old Trafford and getting beat 6-2, getting beat by Chelsea, those those games and the the reaction after it from the press. Um, I think that's sparked a change in Bielsa and I think that's why we're seeing a bit more defensive, defensively robust performances um, because Bielsa does pay attention to the press and he does pay attention to how his team are received. Um, if you remember when we were in the championship, there was that game where um, we suggested playing the short corner to Bielsa in, in the presser uh, before the Middlesbrough game. And then we did it and then Click scored that goal against Middlesbrough. Um, and it just reminded me of that because it, it, it feels a bit like Bielsa is looking at the reaction from those games early on in the season and thinking, OK, well, we're getting criticised for playing all-out attack and having these crazy games, which maybe Bielsa doesn't even mind uh, if we win them. But um, now let's show that we can be defensive. Um, and I think I think those things that um, the the question has mentioned do contribute. I think Dallas in midfield does contribute a lot. Um, I think Urente's impact. You know, we we debate that a lot in our in our chat, um, and we debated it before on the podcast. I think some of his passing was really good yesterday, and I think that helped us break the press a couple of times. Um, so I think the yeah the combination of all those things is probably um, allowing us to be a bit more defensive. But I do agree with what Tom said in that um, a good break and a preseason might just help us reset and work out some proper way of doing this, some kind of balance between the all-out attack and the all-out defence. I do feel as though the summer is going to be quite important. Again, I've mentioned the piece that I'm going to put out later, and that's kind of my question. My question is, we're almost at a crossroads in terms of the way that we're playing at the moment. It feels as though we have that choice to to either go down the route of being like a high-pressing, a man-marking system that's pretty total, or we can maybe drop into what we've been doing more recently, which is a little bit more zonal marking in the midfield areas. Um, I think, you know, 
Dallas was doing it, has been doing it, and Calvin Phillips was doing it, as I said, suggested it really in the first half. Um, and I suppose my my attitude is always we just look better when our press is, is on. And the problem has been that we've not been able to press properly for, for various reasons this season. Um, mostly, I would put it down to Rodrigo not being able to, to engage in the press as well as maybe we would need. Um, and so... I guess I um I'm interested to see where we go this summer. Do we go back to that really sort of intense pressing marking approach or do we do we maybe become a little bit more muted in that sense and I I suppose my worry is that 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 sort of trajectory is kind of what I what what I what I saw from Sheffield United in their time in the Premier League um and I I worry that just sort of making sure that you're not embarrassing yourself in the league is worrying because we got to we got to safety pretty much by playing gung-ho football which could go wrong or could go amazingly and I think playing more conservatively means you lose your edge a little bit in those games where you need to be winning um so so I've said a lot there I'll give you a chance to talk about this Tom because I think this is quite an interesting um aspect of the future for Leeds I mean, you mentioned Rodrigo. I think in terms of being solid, I do think that's coincided with Rodrigo being injured as well. I think we are generally a lot more solid when he's not in the team and he does bring things to the team in an attacking sense. But I think Roberts um, is a much better marker and um, keeps us more solid in that sense. But I I think uh, in terms of the summer and what we do next season, I think Bielsa, I think his idealism reflares in the summer. I don't... even if there are some things that towards the end of the season he might get a little bit more pragmatic about, which I think did happen uh, in his first season to an extent as well. When we, um, when after the Wigan game, I think, and 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 the Derby playoff game and stuff, I think possibly not quite so crazy in some some elements until it really went crazy. Uh, that was on anything to do with tactics. I think I think he'll he'll redouble his efforts, and he he, he usually every preseason so far he's found some tweak to the team that's that's changed things a little bit and I think the idealism will be his starting point I don't think he'll start from a position of oh well we we were a bit more pragmatic and improved in this way so let's go from there I think he'll he'll go back to the route how do we want to play and how can we make that happen and I don't think he'll 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 think just because oh we've been a bit less pressy in the second half of this season we uh we need to continue in that vein I just I just don't see him as that kind of personality and that kind of thinker really and I think games like yesterday's game will probably help in that regard as well, where I think the more aggressive approach clearly carried dividends with it and the more muted conservative approach really didn't. I think some of it's the players as well. I don't think it's all necessarily Bielsa telling them to do things. Uh, especially, well, especially the Man City game. Um, they all basically said that it was it was all they could do. Um, and it's players to a certain extent making decisions for themselves, which which I think is a good thing in the context of the squad and in the context of um, players being more adaptable in the system as well. When they're able to make their own decisions, I think that's a good thing. But equally, I think Bielsa, he will be drilling some new ideas into them in pre-season and, some, and redoubling down on some core principles as well. And again, it will depend on who we bring in in the, in the summer to, to what the, the team will look like next year. Um, let's move on. We had lots of questions about players, so let's get into some of those. Firstly, Pascal Strauch. Um, Stuart McLaughlin says, how long will you talk about Pascal Strauch for? To be fair, he's my man of the match, but if you'd be kind enough to sound a warning whilst you will wet yourselves for 15 minutes so I can skip it, would be appreciated. So, Stuart, you've got 15 minutes to skip um, because we're going to talk about Pascal Strauch here. Um, Tom, what did you make of Pascal yesterday? I thought he was good. I, I, I honestly 
didn't think it was one of his best performances for us. Uh, I thought he was he was about par for the rest of the t- with the rest of the team. Um, uh, he's he's always pretty good, I think, um, and I thought he was pretty good again. But yeah, I, I, I don't think I would have given him Manila much. I'm not sure who I would give it to, but I think he made he made a couple of errors that that maybe would disqualify him from that award for me. I, I would, in fact, I would definitely have given it to Ailing because I thought it was Ailing's best game in ages. But um, yeah, I thought he was fine. He was good. He is good. There's your 15 minutes. Yeah, I I agree with Tom. I think um, I didn't. I don't think I quite realised um, how good his passing was until I saw some of the highlights this morning. I mean. That they are highlights by definition, so um, maybe that's unfair that if they missed a couple of clangers. Um, but um, certainly those passes looked like they were pretty key to our build-up play, um, switching to the wingers. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about Pascal this morning um, compared to Llorente, because we were sort of talking about how that how they both look when they play, how they both run and how they both move their bodies. Um and I think Pascal is just really cool and calm and he looks great when he's doing it. Um, for some reason, it made me think that if they were on Strictly Come Dancing, that, um, <laughs> <laughs> that Pascal would be doing these amazing waltzes um, and Argentine tangos and stuff. And Urente would be the one that's just trying this bollocks dance. He's trying the <laughs> samba or something and his just arms are flailing everywhere and... Yeah, I think it. I think that does sort of contribute to how how we see them both, because um, they both had good points and they both had bad points yesterday. But um, Pascal looked like his his cool his cool self as usual, which is always nice. Yeah, I thought it was a good game from from Pascal Strout yesterday. I think he is just consistent, does pretty much everything well. I think he got turned once by Diego Jota, um, which which led to a fairly decent chance. But apart from that, I thought he did everything well. And as you said, the Josh Hobbs has a highlights video out just showing his distribution, which I think often gets overlooked uh, how good his his distribution is. And I, yeah, interesting that you mentioned the, the sort of aesthetic differences between Llorente and and Strauch. And I, I agree. I think that it probably goes both ways. I think when it comes to defending, Strauch just looks better than Urente because he looks more in control. He's smoother. He's um, he, he's a, a pretty calm player. Um, but also, I think it goes the other way as well. I think sometimes Urente he hits the ball so weirdly that I think people read it as being like incredible disguise, but I just genuinely think that's the way he hits the ball. Um, so maybe sometimes when, when Pascal kind of booms those big balls down into the channels, um, that sounds really bad, but um, <laughs> yeah, I think he just looks a lot smoother doing it. You know, he, 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 and, and it almost looks as though, oh, he's not really done anything that special too. So I think it goes, I think the aesthetics thing goes both ways. And um, yeah, it's, I think we're, we're just in a scenario where we've got a nice mix of center backs now. And I certainly think that Pascal Strauch will be in with a shout of maybe playing a full season for us next year, being the starting center back next season will depend on obviously Cooper, but, you know, it it just seems it seems to have been a a, a general trend this season that we've we've sort of had Cooper in and out of the team, and whenever Strout's come in, he's just come in and looked really solid. Um, and 
I think the biggest thing for me about Strauch is that he's he's clearly a confidence player and his confidence is just building and building and building in every game through the season. It's got to a point now where I don't even worry about him in many respects coming into the games, uh, which I did earlier on in the season, partly because I wanted him to do well. But also now it's just kind of like, yeah, he's a solid Premier League centre-back. You don't need to worry about him. Occasionally he'll make mistakes, but that's kind of par for the course for any centre-back in the system that we're playing and you just you just want to know that over the course of 10 games he's going to have a level of consistency which is going to be good so I think that's the that's the way we have to look at it really. Um, someone who has again a little bit of a a lot of the problem when we talk about when we talk about Strout when we talk about Urente is that everything becomes like everything becomes about events so you're like well this player made this mistake but then he did this thing that was good and this player did this mistake but then he did this thing that was good and I think Pat's also a bit of a victim to that and I think what we try and do on this channel is we try and think in terms of you know sample sizes so you want to you want to take a big chunk of evidence and say over the course of that evidence you know the, that player's done done well done 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 well enough and I think you know the argument is has to be made that that both Pascal and Llorente have done enough to to warrant their starting it I think on the basis of the sample size um in in the team Pat Bamford is someone who again is someone who I think over the all of us would agree this season that he's justified his starting position based on the sample size but the problem is is every time he it's the same with Tyler Roberts as well who's a player that we're going to talk about in a minute but every time there's a there's a the chance that they do something bad then we have to go through the whole conversation again about whether or not they're justifying their place in the team so Pat is another player who's like that had a bit of a poor game yesterday and so obviously the, there's been a few questions about that um, so Neil Harding says has Bamford forgotten what made him so successful at the start of the season Season seems hesitant lack of confidence overthinking just needs to get his shots away unlucky hitting the crossbar though uh, Claudio Aravena says was Bamford really off his pressing timing this game or did it just look like that due to Liverpool's defence constantly breaking through the press but driving forward with the ball um yeah I'll go to let's go to you on this one Tom first what do you make of Bamford um or what did you make him yesterday and I guess with a eye to what I was talking about about that bigger sample size like do we worry about him based on the sample size or is this just a one-off which we shouldn't really think about that much yeah I mean I agree I don't think he had a very good game it was definitely one of his poorer games this season um I I do think he's been a little bit off it the last few games um uh, ever since he played in that game where he wasn't fully fit I can't remember which game that was I'm, I'm just not sure that he's quite 100% fitness it feels like maybe he's being played through a minor injury or something um, I don't know if there's any truth in that or not but uh, I must admit the last few games he's not looked quite as sharp to me um, and I don't mean missing chances I just mean his touch has not been quite as good he's, he's been a little bit late to balls and, and things like that I mean he's not been terrible by any means but I, I do think he's had a little bit of a drop off in the last few games that's not to say I think he should be dropped I think as long as he is fit which I don't you know I, I, I guess I have to assume that he's He's not being he's not being played against his will or anything like that, is he? So, um, so I, I, you know, you just play him through it, and it it'll come good again, I'm sure. Like, uh, yeah, I just I just wonder if if the physical thing is is impacting on his performances, but I don't have any evidence for it. I'm just trying to think when was the last time he he scored? Was it just before an international break that he? played when he wasn't fully fit that's, yeah. that's what I sort of remember yeah well it was just before the international break that he got injured um, I'm just trying right. to work out when that was was it the Chelsea game or was it the Fulham Fulham game? I think so he gets yeah. injured in the Fulham game and then he's a little bit under par for the Sheffield United game 
Mm. And then the other two games and are City and Liverpool, which it's only really, it's only three games I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, you wouldn't really you wouldn't really get too worried if your striker is not scoring in games no. against City and Liverpool. So yeah, and he's a st- streaky striker as well. We talk about this a lot. He's um, he'll go through a phase of scoring a few and then and then have a bit of a dry spell. But um, I, I think that's kind of what I would put it down to. It's it's a couple of tough fixtures. I mean, thirty um, forty five of the minutes that he played against. Right, I guess he got he got hooked, didn't he? But he got he got hooked at half time. Is it half time? Against Just before, City. yeah. Yeah. So um I th- I think it's it, it would be harsh to judge him on the first half against City when we got hammered basically in that in that time frame. Um and then and then a game against Liverpool where you know we we very much have have started just being quite um, counter attacking. I think as well that's the story of the season, right? The, the in the first part of the season we did try and build up a little bit more solidly and since then we've we've gradually become a little bit more counter-attacking and that means that he's not going to get a huge amount of chances he's also not going to get the best kind of chances perhaps so um i don't really have any worries about Pat. how about you joe yeah i'm not really that worried i mean he could have easily scored um yesterday with that lob over allison um which was the, the the perfect decision to make um the ball just set up nicely for the dink over and he was really unlucky that it didn't um, even bounce off the crossbar and just go across the line. Um, and then in the first half, his 1v1, it was just a heavy touch really. And he was also crowded out by three players. Um, so even if his first touch was good enough, I'm not sure whether he would have scored that one. Um, in terms of the pressing yesterday... I think it's just difficult when you look at the the opposition, just the way that Liverpool want to play. Um, I mean, I haven't watched the game back, so this is pretty anecdotal, but um, I think the centre-backs um, stand a lot further apart than most centre-backs, um, and the full-backs get much higher up the pitch. Um, and if Bamford's pressing both centre-backs, because that is his job is to be man-marking both of them um, and curving his runs and to block one of them off and that kind of thing. When they're that far apart, I think it's just really difficult. And um, if he's marking one and then the other drives through the centre of the pitch and he's miles away, uh, then he can't really do anything about that. Um, So I think if we were to um, play um, a team like Crystal Palace, for example, whose centre-backs could quite narrow and the full-backs just sit, um, then his pressing would look a lot better because of that. I think that's become something that clubs have done against us um the whole season since we've been in the premier league has been splitting their center backs really really wide um because it forces the well it forces the striker really to not be able to press both of them at once so the striker will have to sort of do that rolling press that we talk about with the with the 11 uh, sorry the 10 um so dropping back onto the defensive midfielder and then pushing the other player across so yeah I think it's it's just be, it's 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 been said before is it Scott Parker or was it Steve Cooper who said that leads are just really scripted which is true um, and so I think that there's become like a quite a standard way to to play against Leeds and I don't think it benefits Bamford really um, as well in the pressing side of things uh, I'm aware of time so let's move on there were some questions about Jan Pervader, but I think we've talked a little bit about Jan Pervader. So let's talk about um, Tyler Roberts because we've been advocates of Tyler Roberts on this channel 
for for a while this season. Yesterday was a game I would say that made it hard to be a Tyler Roberts stand. I don't think he was. I don't think it was his strongest game. Um, the trainee RQT says, "Will Roberts ever score?" Uh, and Jip says, "Did Tyler Roberts do enough to justify his position in the starting lineup for the remaining games? Was it worth bringing Click or Hernandez back in so that Tyler can get a preseason in behind him and start afresh?" Um, I'll go to you on this, Tom Woodhead. What do you make of Tyler Roberts at the moment? I don't think he was very good against Liverpool, but I think he's generally been good in the games before that. And I think it'd be pretty harsh to drop him for one bad performance. Obviously, he should have done a lot better with that chance. But he he still did do a couple of decent things in the game. He wasn't uniformly terrible. Um, And considering Rodrigo's still injured and Pablo, I don't think is going to be up to the pace of 90 minutes in the Premier League. And we're still not 100% sure about the fitness status of Click, although he looks, you know, he looks fine when he came on yesterday. I'd keep Roberts in the team for now. Um, I think you really risk ruining a player's confidence if you start dropping them after one bad game. And I think that's why Bielsa does take a long time to drop people in general. Mm. Um, so I, I, I would leave it as it is for now. Um, but you leave the door open for, for Click because I think uh, Click does bring some things to our team that. Roberts doesn't so you know I wouldn't I wouldn't be particularly adverse to having click in the team instead of Roberts but as it is it just it just feels really harsh especially considering we've got you know we've got Manchester United next so you know you drop him for Leeds's biggest game of the season in some ways for one bad performance again really harsh and then after that we've got Brighton who play three at the back so you want Roberts in the team for that probably anyway because he's he's going to be the best at playing that sort of second striker role so yeah, I, I I think stick with him for now. I think that it was Josh Hobbs who said yesterday that um, Tyler Roberts is someone who seems to benefit from having Rafinha in the team. Rafinha creates a lot of space, uh, drags players towards him as well, um, that, that allows Roberts to do good things in the middle. And I think it was noticeable yesterday that without uh, Rafinha, that the Roberts was maybe a little bit less uh, impressive. Um I'm just having a look through. One more question I think we'll do um, before we have to wrap things up from Simon Kaiser who says, why can't we hit the man more often at corners? Um, I think this is a good question. I was thinking this yesterday during the game actually, um, that we had that game where Rafinha was putting on Pascal Strauch's head every single set piece. And I thought, you know, here we go. This is going to be great. We're going to be scoring from set pieces all the time. Uh, weirdly, yesterday I felt the set pieces were largely quite poor. Uh, and then we went and scored from one. So um, I'll put this over to you guys. Why do you think we can't hit the man more often at corners? I think it's quite a hard thing to do, first and foremost. I mean, I think when I was reading through the comments on the on the All Stats Aren't We page, um, seeing what the questions were going to be, I think one of the replies to this was... Um, that we've had about 150 corners this season and we've scored three of them. Um, but actually, that's about that's about right for for when you look at corner statistics, how many of them result in goals. I think it's about two or three percent. So you would be looking at two or three out of every hundred corners. So 150, you know, three is maybe slightly on the low side. You might be looking for four, but <laughs> even then, um, I think we're about bang on. And I think it's maybe just a skill that. Um, it's hard to it's hard to appreciate as football fans because I totally feel the same that you know why can't we just whip in the ball and land it on their heads but um, I think it's just one of those things that's much harder than it looks and um, the the goal yesterday was the result of a fantastic ball in from Harrison um, and almost as soon as he hit it you could see it was landing in that area where the three um, there were three Leeds players 
in that small zone just on the edge of the six yard box and maybe Allison should have come to claim it but um it looked like it was going to result in a, in a really big chance and yeah I think maybe it's just quite a difficult skill to hit the man every time yeah I think if you stuck a player on their own in the, in the penalty box and told a Leeds player to hit them on their hit their head from the corner spot they'd probably do it most of the time the point is is that there's a whole team of other people trying to stop you from doing that. And so there is definitely a need to whip balls in now. And when you whip balls in, if you're hitting them with your laces, then there's a lot bigger margin for error. You're also hitting the ball a lot flatter. So, you know, the the margin for error is increased there as well. So I think it, it comes down to that because I think people kind of think, oh, well, you know, just float it in and, and hit people on the head. But if you do that, centre-backs are just always going to, either the keeper's going to get it number one or the the opposition centre-backs are just going to be able to clear it out Um, you've got to try and get that speed on it you've got to try and get that whip on it and um, that just makes it very very difficult which is one reason why you often see the ball not clearing the first player on the on the post and I say that you get a lot of fans who are frustrated because you will you'll see sides who always seem to hit the first man and it just gets cleared away but again you're you're trying to hit that area with speed so that someone can run in front post and and get something on it so that it goes back across the box so yeah, just a it's it's just a really difficult thing to do. I think it was maybe a couple of seasons ago where we moved from the likelihood of scoring from a corner as an attacking team being overtaken by the likelihood of of scoring from a corner from a defending team. So you're more likely now, I think, to score a goal on a counter attack than you are from a corner than you are to score from your own actual corner. So it's it's definitely a, a really difficult skill to do. Um, Tom Woodhead, do you have any thoughts on corners? No, I was I was going to say the exact same thing about the first man that you did. Like you know, you get so many people grumbling. Um, all these people are getting paid forty grand a week, and they can't hit, get past the first man in the corner. But if you just float it into the back post every time, then it doesn't matter if you hit the man because the man isn't going to do anything with it, is he? So. Right, I think we should end with um, just a note from our positive correspondent, Dan Holdsworth. He had a few positives for us. So he said, great to see the team adapt and come back after a poor first half. Global capitalism is showing itself for what it truly is to a whole new audience. The pitch, the pitch, no one's talking about the pitch anymore. It's performing quite well now. And then Pascal is beautiful. I don't know if you guys have got anything you'd like to add in terms of the positives from the game yesterday. I would say actually, yeah, the pit, I realised halfway through the second half that I'd barely noticed the pitch at all. So, you know, well done whoever's been looking after that. <laughs> yeah, we'll be back next week to give you some more pitch updates. We haven't done it for a while, actually, but we are Leeds United's number one pitch correspondent. So no doubt there will be some update in the offing soon. I think that probably just about wraps it up for uh, the Liverpool review. We'll be back during the week sometime with a Manchester United preview hopefully uh, if I can find someone who wants to talk about them to a Leeds United podcast if you like what we do and you want to get more of it then yeah head over to our Patreon channel we have lots of stuff over there I will be putting up some analysis from the game uh, some video analysis from the game yesterday at some point in the next couple of days so do check that out and uh, yeah I think that that pretty much ends this podcast so all there is for me to do is to say thank you Tom Thank you. I'm off to join a different super podcast. Hey, you're going to try and consolidate all of the huge amounts of money that is available in football. I just feel like I'm wasted like dealing with these minnows every week. <laughs> yeah, thank you to our other minnow, Joe. Thanks very much. And we'll see you in a few days' time.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.